0: Pastor Bray's ministry, is that Pastor Bray starts in a book, if you've been around here for any length of time at all, Pastor Bray starts in a book, and he works his way through that book, uh, verse by verse, and one of the products of that is that you get a very balanced ministry from the pulpit. Preachers that don't do that, what typically happens is they get their pet subjects, and you hear lots and lots and lots about that. I'm not on Pastor Bray's program. This is an isolated thing for me. So what you're going to get today is basically a product of what I've been hearing in Sunday school class as we study through the book of Job and then praying for different families for some of the things y'all have been going through. Before we start, let's open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for who you are. We pray that today we'll get a bigger glimpse, right thinking, a better understanding of how you've revealed yourself. We pray that that we'll leave here changed as we ponder the truths that are in your word, Lord, this job is bigger than me. We pray that the people here will see, hear your words. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're going to be looking as a launching pad as at Genesis 44, verses 14 through 34. And that's not really our text. We'll be to our text here in a little bit. Y'all bear with me a little bit. If you look at the book of Genesis... An interesting kind of a subplot, a thing that runs through the book of Genesis is the way that the characters actually develop inside of the book. So, Abraham, uh Pastor brain-made reference to it. K- uh, kids? Sorry, I got excited and started talking. Anybody else? Anybody? What? No, 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 I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time somebody left. But if you... It, if, if you look at the book of Genesis, so Abraham, chapter 22, we see almost the pinnacle of Abraham's faith when he, uh, the Lord says, you know, sacrifice Isaac. And then of course, we know the story. Jehovah stops him before he actually actually sacrifices Isaac. But it's a, re- a remarkable display of faith. But the story starts back in, in Genesis chapter 12, and there he's named Abram. Joshua tells, the book of Joshua tells him that he's actually coming from a, a family of idol worshipers in Ur. God calls him out and moves him, um, his family, and, and this great act of faith is immediately followed by an act of cowardice where he denies his relationship with Sarah so he can say, save his hide. Um, and we see that again in, in, in the, uh, Genesis chapter 20. The... But, in Genesis chapter fifteen, something interesting happens. God approaches Abram again, and he makes, makes his promise to him that he, that he 's going to be a, what a great nation and Part of this part of this changing this elevation of Abram and Sarai is a changing of their names and, and what we 're seeing here is a development of their character. They went from this this obscure family, idol-worshipping family, to God has elevated them almost to royalty. And so he changes their name, but puts a vow on it. Abraham, the great father, a great father, becomes Abraham, the father of a multitude. Sarai becomes my princess to the princess. But I think what's more significant in, in some ways is that God even names them. I've, I've joshed with almost every pregnant woman here, and and said, "Hey, can I name your children?" And 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 I've bartered and wagered with the husbands, and I've won. I, I would have you know, but nobody's let me name their kids. Why is that? Because they're not my kids. I've got I've got to name exactly six kids and and my wife had veto power on every one of them. So <laughs> I, we, when, you, when you name the child, it, what is it showing? It, it's showing a special relationship to that. Move on, Jacob. We see the same type of movement with Jacob. Jacob, as we all know what, means deceiver, supplanter. Jeremiah, when it says the heart is deceitful, it's saying the heart is Jacob, the supplanter, that is desperately wicked. Jacob, we see Jacob... What? Bartering with his brother over his birthright. Deceiving his father to get a blessing. We see all these things, but in chapter 22, something interesting happens with Jacob. Jacob is approached by the angel of the Lord, and he starts contending, fighting, wrestling, and he's saying, bless me. And Jacob is saying this. And there's there's a struggle here. Now think about what's really going on here. Jacob is struggling with the angel of the Lord. How should that go? Well, the reality is that, that should, that's a fight that shouldn't last long, but we're told that it actually lasts all night long. And at the end, the angel of the Lord touches his, uh, touches his the, the hip socket, leaves Jacob a cripple. But then that special relationship, the old commentators say that Jacob was actually converted that night. And what does God do when he changes, when God's Jacob's status with him? Was it he changes his name? Now he becomes Israel, the contender with God. But what do we see there? We see Jacob moving, right? We see Jacob, the one who was the supplanter, the deceiver that was conniving his way into his family's fortune. And now he's carrying this name, striver, contender with God. He becomes in his own right a prince. You move over a few chapters and we're we're introduced to another character. This time, her name doesn't get changed, but there's a valuable lesson in the way she names her children. Look and oh, look at this one with me if you can. If you're uh, Genesis 29, Genesis 29, really interesting thing that's going on here. We remember Jacob. He leaves. He goes and works for for Laban. He works, and he says part of his wages is he's going to get his wife, and he picked one. He picked Rachel. And on the wedding night, and I'm not exactly sure how the dynamics of all this, but all of a sudden he doesn't end up with Rachel. He, in fact, ends up with Leah. The irony is here what? Jacob, the deceiver, just got deceived into marrying the woman that he didn't want. No offense, Leah. You're 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 gonna make a great wife someday. He she got the he, he got the one. She didn't he didn't want. Look at look at the kind of piece together the mentality that's going on. So he, he works another seven years, he gets Rachel, he now he has has Leah and Rachel. Look at what's going on in Genesis twenty nine. Look at how she names her children. You know, they both had trouble having children. But then when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and and she, she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Reuben means see a son. So, so Leah is thinking. Now I have some kind of credibility, some kind of attachment to this guy that was deceived into even taking me to begin with. Look again, verse thirty-three. She conceived again. And bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me a son also. And she called his name Simeon. And Simeon sounds like the word for for her. God that 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 the Lord heard me again, and now, maybe now I've given him another son. Maybe, maybe he'll he'll accept me now. No dice. Look again, verse thirty-four. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And once again, you get the sense that that, that conflict, that whole idea that she's, she's attached to a guy that doesn't want her, is still there. And then look at what she does in the fourth son. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing Do you see what happened there? Leah Leah gets attached, gets almost manipulated into being this guy's wife the guy doesn 't like it there 's a separation there, 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 there she 's fighting she 's struggling, try to be accepted by this guy it 's not working out. God opens her womb, she bears three sons, and she keeps saying, "Look i born you a son i born you another, hoping that that would repair the relationship and what happens doesn 't happen Then what does she do? Where does she find her comfort? Where does she find her find her 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 essence who she is? She finds it in God, so you see her moving. In her relationship with the world, what her focus went from Jacob to what her focus went went, went to God, so we see that movement but judah interesting guy in himself right if you 've raised kids, you always always you always come up to genesis chapter thirty eight and what are you like you 're like shuddering just a little bit because do I really want my eight year old to to read this passage it 's like one of the most graphic Passages of human depravity in the Bible, and Judah has two sons. God ends up because of ten taking both of these sons. He has has a relation. He has a responsibility to Tamar. He says, "Okay, I will give you my son when she when he grows up." Never happens. He goes out in the fields one day, and. They're 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 out working their, their their sheep, and then in the evening, he comes back and he hires a prostitute. Well, what he didn't know was that the prostitute that he hired was in, was actually his daughter in law. And, and and so we we go we read through this story and we see this guy that's a hedonistic sexual pervert. Some of it doesn't take responsibility. We see that guy. And, with that, and, and my point is this. He, he works through that, and, and he even says, she's much better than I am. Go back and read the passage. He, it seems to be a learning time for him. But then we get to our text, and what makes it remarkable, not our text, but you know what I mean, but what makes this remarkable is this, that Judah is about to, was going to say this statement even at all. There's nothing in Judah's history that tells you he would make this statement. Let's start reading in verse 14, and then we'll read we'll, to, to, to close to the end. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, "'What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination?' And Judah said, What shall, shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of our servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may see my eyes. I set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes Unless If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to shield." Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. How, for how can I back to my, go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. There. Remarkable thing for a guy to say who two chapters before, six chapters before was selfish, self-serving, irresponsible, Look at verse 16. If I, can, What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of our servants. This is the same guy whose family was complete, was living almost devoid of any responsibility over in chapter 38, doing what they want, sexually doing anything they want, Almost like there was no connection between what was happening and what God would do. And here he says, God has found out the guilt of our servants. What he's saying, all these bad things that are happening now, the idea that you've caught us, <laughs> you're bringing us back, we're, we're, we're your servants, you're, we're your prisoners. This is all the work of God. An interesting thing is, not, not so much an interesting thing, but He's right. This was, this was a fun thing. I didn't know Pastor Ray was going to do this. But if you, if, if dads, if, you open, in your, if you, you open in your London Baptist Confession to Chapter 3 there, this is convenient. Um, I put it up there because I didn't know we all had the text. The London Baptist Confession was 1688, 1689. Do we think the London Baptist Confession is infallible? No, we don't. But it's a nice learning tool. It's a nice organized way of thinking about, about doctrine and proof text. Look at what the London Baptist Confession says in chapter 3 regarding God's providence. God had decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. And that's a proof text. Well, I'm not even going to try to read that. (laughs) Isaiah 46 I should have let my wife do the PowerPoint. She, I would have a, Isaiah 46 as the proof text, and there's a lot of these. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird to pray from the East, the man of my counsel from a far country I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. When we get the same kind of teaching in other places, what not a hair falls from your head that the Lord doesn't know about it. My head is kept busy. (laughs) <laughs> the not, the sparrow doesn't fall from the sky. But we, we understand that, that the Lord is sovereign over everything. Look at the next statement. Yet so as thereby, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor a fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. If I say to you that God is the author, the the providentially decrees everything that comes to pass, what is the first question that logically comes into your mind? If God decrees everything that happens, does that make God responsible for evil and for sin? And this is an answer, and Pastor Bray actually said, stated this very well. There's got to be a category in our thinking that God can, can be sovereign over, and can decree without being ultimately responsible. We get a proof text. One of them that they use here is the James 1 I think I can read that one, matter of fact. No one is to say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. We're used to thinking in terms like that. You remember how the story goes with, with, with Judah and Joseph and Jacob? Judah had sold his brothers, his brothers had sold Joseph into slavery. Why? Because they were jealous of him. They were jealous of the, of the care that Jacob had given him, jealous of, of, of the coat that he gave him. So they sold him into slavery. Joseph, thinking back on this, says this, as for you, listen to this carefully, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see what's going on there? Who was the cause that Joseph got sold into slavery? Well, we would say, well, his brothers. And that would be true, right? But we would also say that that God was over that. Look at this. This one's even more remarkable. And let me read a little bit of context. Acts chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported. And this is this is uh, uh, Peter and John. They went to their friends and reported that chief priests and elders had said to them, and, and said to them. And they heard it. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them predestined to take place. So then I ask you this, who crucified Christ? Well, in the the immediate sense, Pilate, the Jews, right? But who who had ultimately decreed it? Who sovereignly decreed for it to come to pass? God the Father, God the Son, in in Holy Communion in the Trinity. That principle, as difficult as it is for us to fathom, as difficult as it is for us to get our hands around, is the principle that that almost the whole entire Bible is written around. I'll have to fly fly through these just a little bit. Flip the page over, go into Exodus, and you've just moved four hundred years. Now, keep in mind here, four hundred years. There's as much difference in time between. Jacob and Joseph as Moses, as there is between us and what? Winthrop and Bradford and Roger Williams of the colonies in 1620. There's that kind of time gap there. And God God calls Moses to free his people. Why? Because things have changed. Initially, the, the people went down there. Jacob took his family down there. They, they settled in the land of Goshen, and it was, it was a good time for them. They settled. They started raising crops. There was a population expo- explosion. They, they became a big people. But as time went on, when we look in the book of Exodus, things have changed. Now, all of a sudden, what, what's going on here? Now they're being, now they're being slayed, enslaved. Now they're being, what, enforced infanticide? Now they're being oppressed and God is pulling them out. And, and Moses, God says to, to Moses, I want you to pull these people out. And he says, what's your name? What's, what should I tell them your name is? And this is where we hear the voice of God say, my name is I Am. My name is I Am. Interesting thing here. The grammar of that is like I am the eternal, ever-present one. I, I was listening to a linguist several years ago, 20 years ago. And he was talking about how he was translating the Bible and he was trying to come up with a good way of expressing the idea, that the ever-present. And he said he was sitting in, this, in this, this hut with these people that were helping him to translate the Bible and a storm hit. And they're, they're struggling. They're, 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 a storm hits and the mom, they hear the kids yelling and, and the mom yells in there and says, I'm here. And I held on to that idea, and he used that word to translate I, what shall you say my name is I am. And I, 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 I used that, I thought, well, that makes sense, and I held on to that for a long time. That's not really what's going on here. It's not that God is saying to these people, I, I am here to go through the storm with you. What is God really saying? God is saying, I created this storm, Right? See, we're running a little bit short in time, but let me go back go back to, to look at it later. Oh, we're in the book of Daniel. Did I put it down? I don't think I did. Good, I did. So if you look in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had built this incredible empire. If you read Herodotus, Herodotus and be careful with secular history, I'm sure there's exaggeration, but he said the walls of this thing, the, of Babylon at the time, were 320 feet high, 80 feet across, and stretched around 57 miles. If you and really be careful with this, but uh, Josephus, quoting a, a contemporary a contemporary of Nebuchadnezzar, talks about the hanging ba- the hanging gardens of Babylon, the seventh wonder of the world, trees and jungles coming up that that he fabricated. So here's my point: Nebuchadnezzar's walking through here, and he says, "Look at all I have done." And what happens? God. Causes him on the spot to lose his mind. And the lesson that, that, that's taken out of this is Nebuchadnezzar is not the one that, that, that conquered all of these people. Well, in the immediate sense, he is, right? But who, among, who was the ultimately responsible? Who was the one that put Nebuchadnezzar in his place? Who was the one that caused Nebuchadnezzar to rise like that? God was. Was Nebuchadnezzar an evil man? Absolutely. Nebuchadnezzar took the sons of Zedekiah, killed them in front of Zedekiah, and then gouged out his eyes. Nebuchadnezzar was not a good man, but ultimately, who put Nebuchadnezzar in his place? God did. Look at the verse that's up there now. So Moses is talking to God, and God says, okay, I want you to go talk to Pharaoh for me. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. How did God, do you all remember how God responded to that? Who made the deaf? Who made the mute? Does that sound familiar? Does it remind you of something that happened in John? John chapter 9. Let me see if I put that one on there. Uh, What did I put here? No, he did. We'll go back to that. But in John chapter 9, do you remember what happens? There was a guy that was born blind. And what did the guys ask him? Lord, who sinned? Was it this guy that sinned? Or was it his parents that sinned? Who sinned that this guy would be born blind? And 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 Christ rejected his rejected his the premise altogether and said, This this guy was born blind because bad things happen. Is that what Christ said? That's not what Christ said. Christ said, this guy was was born blind. Why? Because I'm going to glorify God through this man's blindness. Here's the point. Who created the deaf? Who created the dumb? Who, in in a real sense, is responsible for all the handicaps that we see? God is. God is. Now, certainly we would say that that is all part of a fallen world, but it is not outside the the, the providence of God, and we've got to make it bigger than that. God made it so. God creates the deaf. God creates the dumb. God created that man blind. Move on one more time here. And this is the one that we struggle with mostly. Exodus 3. Let me see here. Where am I? Not very good. Look at Exodus 9, 8 through 12, because this is the the one that we struggle with most. When we think about this idea of God ruling everything, decreeing everything, controlling everything to the very details of it, this is the one that we stop and we say, wait a minute, Exodus 9, verses 8 through 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw, throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over, dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores of man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast and the magicians magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh Wait a minute doesn't that strike us as odd the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh I went deer hunting with my dad when I was a kid one time, and I, uh, I couldn't see deer, you know, I wasn't good at it, but my dad was looking out in some brush, and then their buck goes walking by, and he points it out, there goes one now, and I was stunned that there's this, de- this deer in the brush that my dad saw, and so now I'm a 10-year-old kid, and I start seeing deer everywhere. I start seeing 10-point bushes, and, and pretty soon I'm shooting at calves and ranchers and everything else, you start seeing it everywhere. I'm kidding about shooting at the ranchers. I was reading through the book of, of Judges this week, and I was reading Samson, and Samson get, wants to get involved with this woman he has no business getting involved with. Look at, at, in Judges 14.4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philist- Philistines. Did you see, get that? His parents didn't know that Samson's attraction to this woman that he had no business getting involved with was from the Lord. We struggle with that a little bit, don't we? Let, let me let me throw some stuff out there that kind of guide our thinking on this. Number one, it's not uncommon at all for the Bible to put two ideas that we think are just absolutely contradictory next to each other. Look at this verse. Therefore, my beloved, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's Paul saying there? Hey, work out your salvation. Work the fruits of your salvation. Act like you're saved. He's telling them to do that. But in the same breath, sitting right next to it, no explanation whatsoever, what does he say? Because it's God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I, we, we, we've got other things like this. Think about how our Bible got here. So we're sitting here and we're reading the book of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus. Who wrote that? Moses? Yeah, we can say that, but what else can we say? God so we're, we've always got that, that tension. That all, that's always going to play. So we have that. Uh, the other thing is like this. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Our, our ways are not God's ways. There's a sense that God's thinking way up here and we're way down here. And like some of y'all homeschool moms, y'all have had an opportunity that's just fantastic. You've got to teach your kids all the way from, from counting apples on the table to, to calculus in high school. Well, I, our oldest kid... Um, he's teaching math and science or science or what. He's teaching something in South Carolina right now. But he went all the way through and did all the big classes in, in college. I, I hired him one summer and I was working on on this valve and I needed the exact area of this valve. And this thing is like all kinds of odd shapes. There, there was a, a sphere in the middle of this thing. That, that had some of it cut out and that you know just just some of it was part of a cylinder but but there were there was a, an arc of it cut out of it I'm a when I run into something like that I throw hand grenades I sit there and I I get you close to what it's gonna be here's your number bud work with it my kid was working through his calculus class and he came back looking at the same valve that, that I did and he came up with some kind of crazy I don't even know what it is. Some kind of regression analysis thing on how to find the area of this file. First of all, I couldn't use it. Number two, I didn't understand it. But the other thing is, I remember this kid when he was just counting. And what, 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 what I was thinking was when he was four, he doesn't touch this stuff. Why? He would think this is a foreign language. Now, my point is this. The smartest guy... We have walking the planet. There's not a, there. There's more difference between our smartest and God's thinking than there is between Justin as a four year old and Justin as a college graduate. The, the The difference is literally infinite. So there's something going on. We don't understand the calculus of how God can what both tell us go do this and at the other at the same time say. I'm making you will to do that. We don't understand that. And then there's one more thing that I think we have to think about. I I told you, we're talking about Sunday school. Some of this is a reflection of what I've been thinking about from Sunday school. This is my last reference to Job in the whole thing here. Was Job ever given an explanation? No, not really. He he said, I'm I'm God. This is why this this happened. Uh, We're going to look at the passage again here in a little bit. But Romans nine, dealing with exactly what we're talking about here, God said, "But I, I, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy," goes back to, to where Pharaoh's heart is hardened. What is Paul's answer to that? This is God. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us an answer. He's the Creator. We're the creation. So, 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 and, and here's where I wanted to dig in for a little bit. What do we do with that? What do we do with it when it looks like God's sovereignty is causing real harm? How do we as Christians deal with this? Our text this morning, and I'm sorry, that took us a long time to get with our text, and I promise we'll be done here in 15 minutes. Matthew 4. We're going to look at the temptation of Christ because every last one of these is, every last one of these in some way deals with God's sovereign plan. Matthew 4, we'll, we'll read it in pieces. I was going to read it all, but we'll read it in pieces. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, the, the grammar of this thing, we, we can misread it a little bit when it says, If you are the Son of God, the, 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 the class of, of conditional statement we have here is actually this. If you are the Son of God, and for argument's sake, let's say you are the Son of God, Turn these stones into bread. And, and Christ responded like this. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he got his answer. Christ got his answer to Satan's temptation back in Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. And Moses is, is recounting to the people that God had led them into a, to a wilderness and he had put them into a spot where they were going to go hungry. Let that sink in. Dads, let that sink in. We're used to be able to feed our family, aren't we? We're used to be able to turn the spigot on and my kid can get water. God put them in a position where that wasn't gonna happen. But if if you look at that, look at look at real quick. Deuteronomy eight, two and three. Look at look at it real quickly here. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers and you shall remember the whole way that your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. God put them in a position where they had nothing else but him. Jesus Christ it said, he was led out to the, to the, the wilderness and was he fasted for forty days. he was hungry. God in his, God the Christ, the man, felt hunger. Right? And his humanity felt hunger just like we would. And Satan was saying, avoid this. And what 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 did Christ say? There's something bigger, there's something more important. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Or you know what the problem is? So many times that when we run into something like that, what is our primary focus? i got to get this need met. i got to get this need met, somehow or another, be it, be it whatever it is. If, if it's a financial problem, what's our, what's our big focus? Lord, pay my bills. If it's a distance that develops between you and your wife, Lord, fix my marriage. If your kids go running off, what is it? Lord, bring my kid back. And these are all good prayers. Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh, and what did he do? He said, Lord, take this thing away. That is not illegitimate. But what is more important? What is God trying to teach me in this hunger? What is God trying to teach me in this marital isolation? And so often what ends up happening is we we almost, because of the needs that God sovereignly led us into, that God sovereignly set up to put us in this position, what do we end up doing? We make occasion for sin. These guys did it all the time. The Hebrews did it all the time. Moses left. There was a vacuum of of leadership. And what did they do? They started cavorting around and, and worshiping a cow. They, they, they came here and they run into a spot where there's no food, there's no water, and they, I don't come at this from a position of strength, what they do. They immediately started sinning and murmuring and crying out against God. There's been some recently, and this has been a tragedy. There have been a lot of preachers that have fallen. I mean, I miss Vicky or Alex, or people that have counseled would be more apt to speak to this than I have, but when you listen to the story of these preachers that have fallen in adultery. They've almost all, without exception, said, my, my marriage turned into more of a business uh, situation. Or it, I wasn't getting out of what, my marriage what I needed, so I went chasing this girl. The reality is are the things in your marriage that are causing separation, are those outside the sovereignty of God? Your children leaving the faith. Is that outside the sovereignty of God? Did God do it on accident? No. Let's move on. We'll, we'll keep going here. I gotta, I'm running out of time and lunch is getting ready. Where did the thing go? Well, I'm falling behind, y'all. I'm sorry. Matthew 4, 5 through 7. I have to flip back there myself. Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on the, their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. See what Satan did right there? Christ, in the first temptation, makes an incredible statement about the sovereignty of God. It's God. It's God. That's sovereign over hunger. It's God that's sovereign over want and isolation. God is ultimately over all of this. So Satan takes that and says, "You know, the Bible says that you could that that the angels wouldn't let you dash a hill. You can't hurt yourself. So why don't you go jump off the temple? What is he doing? He's taking the decree of God." And he's being presumptuous with it and saying God has decreed that you can't dash your hill. Prove it. Do it. Jump off of there. He's being presumptuous with the sovereignty of God. And do we ever do that? I would say absolutely we do. I think sometimes it comes in the form of reckless living. So we would say that that God is the one that calls people by grace so William Carey, when he's got a desire to go to Asia, what do the people tell him? Well, if God wants the heathens sa- sa- saved, he will save them. We're presumptuous in that sort of way. There's another way that we can be presumptuous, and this way is almost just as dangerous. We can take and say it's by God's grace That my children come to Him. My children haven't come to Him. Therefore, God doesn't have wish it to be so, and we are not to presume. Terry and I had had two instances where John chapter eleven was a special blessing. With one of one of them was when we had a miscarriage in between Jason and Joshua, and it was a blessing to know that that we have a high priest that can't That can be touched with the with the feeling of our infirmity, Jesus wept, he felt he felt their pain <clears throat> joel Joel signed the waiver's still good, right joel joel left the left the church maybe three or four years ago for a while, and he was out there and, and, and it was a pain it, w- it was awful for us i, I it was several months and i am like you, you you go to bed at night and you wake up thinking what's my kid doing tonight and then some days you wake up angry at god, god you could have done this. you could do something about this. then other days you you wake up and say well, what what did i do wrong yeah you know, so you get all of those feelings but at some point after time goes on and some of you all have fought through this for years god bless you at some point you think my my child is dead and, and I think I'm like Martha. Do you remember Martha in, in John chapter 11? Jesus, she, she calls to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, come. Lazarus is sick. And, and Jesus doesn't come when she wants. And, and what's going on here? The Lord could stop it. And she comes up. And four days later, the Christ comes after Lazarus dies. And Martha says, hey, you could have stopped this. And... And 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 what does Jesus say, Martha? Where's the tomb? Uh, roll roll the stone away, and 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 Martha says, "It's too late." He thinks, I, I, "I have you ever been there? You, you you kid, it's too late. It is not ours." to presume on the sovereignty of God. God is the one that calls. He's the resurrection and the life. Your child, though he gets dead, he could live. It is not ours to presume on the sovereignty of God. And then, last one, and I'll skip through this because of time, The last one is Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. I don't think we grasp this. But Christ, from eternity past, in communion with God the Father, loving God the Father, the 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 beautiful Trinity and something when Christ goes to the cross, we don't understand it, but we say that 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 when the Father placed the sins of the world on the Father on the Son, he turned his face away. What was Christ saying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, let this cup pass from me. This is too much. This, too, let this. but he said, Not my will, but thy will be done. Satan comes to, to the Lord and says, hey, just worship me. We'll avoid that. We'll avoid the cross. I I, 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 I get tickled. We say, the, "the we shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. I I, I don't know if y'all, y'all, y'all remember this, but 20 years ago, and I remember this, two weeks ago, it was the anniversary. but We had the flood that came through Houston. And, and uh, uh, Terry and I, I think we had like five feet of water out in the street and three feet of water in the house. And it sat there for 12, 14 hours. Everything we had was ruined. And, and, and it, was kind of, it was kind of funny. Uh, Jared was three or something, and I could get him to say, we lost it all. And, and, and it was a fun thing for me to get him to say, Terry made me quit say, quit doing that because <laughs> she said I was messing the kid up. But the, but the joke was, well, at that time we had, what, four kids or something like that. I'm working two jobs. We lost everything, and it didn't matter. I mean, the insurance company came out and said, really, this is it? You can start peeling off $20 and see you." We didn't have anything to lose. So the idea that, that we were ser- serving stuff, I mean, that, that was a joke. That's not exactly how Christ puts it. If you look over in, where is it, Luke? I think I did get this one. Come on. Oh, no. There we go. Look at what he says right there. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and the mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let that sink in a little bit. Christ comes and says, hey, unless you hate your family, you can't be my disciple. Now, does God expect us to hate our wife and our children? Absolutely not. He's, he's using that as an expression to illustrate a point. What? That Christ has to be first. God has to be first. Everything comes after that. What was first in, in Christ, what we would say, and I, 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 I need to be careful with my words here, but what was that? It was the communion with the Father, and the Lord was willing to turn His back on that. It's in these circumstances, when when God sovereignly puts things in our way that, that causes us pain, it reveals our values. I, uh... oh will hush here. I, I, I... I, I look at this and I, I i look at all this stuff and christ told the disciples about this later there was nobody here we say the angels came and minister i think about peter you remember peter at the at he he hears this and i don't know when he heard it how did peter do on the night of christ's crucifixion didn't do good he didn't do good he went in there bold right i'm not leaving you lord I'm not going to deny you. And, 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 and Christ said, before the cock crows in the morning, you're, you're going to deny me three times. No way. What happened? In fact, Peter did deny him. Now let me ask you this. Who down to the cock crowing in the morning? Who was in control of those circumstances? God was. Our problem is we think of God, my problem, is we think of all these circumstances and in our, in our first thought is how do I get out of these circumstances? How do I fix that? And the reality is God's doing something greater. He moved Peter from denying Christ to standing boldly in front in front of the religious leaders and the government officials in Chapter act, he moved him, and I'm sure that part part of him is thinking. To this dying day, Peter remembers the night that he denied Christ three times. God changed Peter. God used those circumstances to move Peter into something else. Jamie, if you get ready, I'm I'm about done here. It would be foolish for me to even try to say, it's Jamie here, there you go. It would be foolish for me to say why some of y'all are going through this stuff that you're going through. I can't connect the dots. I don't know. But I know this. Christ, the great I am, is still at work.